Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Central Asian Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Nick C., a host of the channel. Today, we'll be talking with Professor Shoshana Keller about her new book, Russia and Central Asia, Coexistence, Conquest, Convergence, published by University of Toronto Press. Professor Keller holds a PhD from Indiana University and is a professor of history at Hamilton College, where she teaches courses in Russian, Middle Eastern, and Central Asian history. In addition to her new book, she is also the author of several articles and chapters on Central Asian history, as well as her first book, To Moscow, Not Mecca, published by Prager Publishers in 2001. Shoshana, welcome to the show. Thank you. I'm very excited to talk about this book, which I I thoroughly enjoyed reading today. Um, But before we get into the discussion of the book, I I wanted to give you an opportunity to tell us about how you got interested in Central Asian studies in the first place. Okay, yeah, it's it's not really a a typical interest uh, for younger people. Um, I started off really falling in love with the Russian language. Um, I took started to take Russian when I was a senior in high school in Wisconsin and uh, just found the language wonderful. So I went to uh, Carleton College in Minnesota and continuing study, studied the language and discovered that while I might love the language, the grammar was really hard and I was not necessarily the most stellar uh, Russian language student, but I was also taking a lot of courses in history and I was good at history. Uh, so I pursued pursued kind of a dual track uh, with the language study and the history. Of course, I took Russian history. I also took South Asian history and was really struck. Now, this was in the mid-1980s, right? So, so the Soviet Union uh, still existed uh, with my South Asian uh, professor talking about people invading India in the ancient period, even up into the 16th century, repeatedly from Central Asia and all of the changes that they wrought in India and the culture that they brought from Central Asia. Uh, well, then I would look at a map and realized that you know this mysterious place where all these invaders came from was part of the contemporary Soviet Union that I was also studying. Uh, but we really never talked about that part of the Soviet Union. Uh, our our you know, studies of Soviet history really amounted to Russian history and a little bit of Ukrainian history in the communist period. And, and that was, of course, perfectly standard um, across the United States for anybody studying the Soviet history in the, this period. Uh, but it made me very curious about the hugeness of uh, this land mass, you know, looking at maps and, and just seeing it cross half the planet and realizing that there was an awful lot that I had absolutely no idea who was out there, what their history was. Uh, so I really just wanted to know what's going on with this big blank spot on the map um, and started to work on that 
on my own. Uh, my undergraduate uh, senior thesis in history uh, was a comparative study of Russian colonialism in Central Asia with uh, Indian col- uh, British colonialism in India. Um, some of that actually ended up ultimately becoming part of my first book. Um, that really you know, fired my interest. Uh, so from there, I wanted to study some of the languages of Central Asia, and that's why I chose Indiana University, because at the time, there were very few universities, there's still very few universities in the country that taught Central Asian languages, and Indiana was one of them. Uh, so I went from Carleton down to Indiana. Yeah, thank you for sharing. And, and um, that kind of uh, serves as a kind of a prelude for a lot of the themes that you explore in this book. And, you know, it's very clear that some of those uh, initial things that interest you in, in Russia and Central Asia uh, still ring true, you know, several years later. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. um, so that's that's really exciting to see. So I'm wondering if you can tell us, you know, a little bit more in depth, like, uh, what kind of across your your career, like what brought you to this specific project? Um, why did you feel the need to write um, this book, Russia and Central Asia, Coexistence, Conquest and Convergence, which really seems to be um, kind of uh, an overview of kind of Central Asian studies or, you know, Central Asian history as it's been uh, written about in, in in kind of Western and not only Western historiography in the last 20 or so years. Um, what kind of audience are you hoping to reach with this work? Okay, yeah, that's, that's a multi-layered question. Um, I really started thinking about this project in 2014, in fact, I was attending the Central Eurasian Studies Conference, uh, which that year was at Columbia University. And in fact, I was on a panel with Scott Levy, uh, among a couple of other people. Um, I'm blanking on what the pl- panel was actually on, but it was obviously some aspect of Islam in Central Asia. Uh, but we were, after our panel, lamenting the fact that there were really no good quality and accessible histories of modern Central Asia that had been written in a very long time. And there were certainly books available. For instance, when I started my studies in Central Asian history, I could go to Edward Allworth's, right, Central Asia Under Russian Rule, uh, which he originally published in 1967. Uh, And I'm sure you and and many listeners to this podcast are familiar with Allworth's work. Uh, It was a perfectly good, solid book. Uh, It was an edited collection of chapters. So Allworth wrote on literature and I think one other chapter on culture, brought in a bunch of other people to write about uh, agriculture and a bit about economics and, of course, politics. Uh, But the core four chapters, a big, big chunk of that book, uh, were on the history of the Russian conquest of Central Asia. Those were all written by the French scholar Hélène Corradoncos. And those were perfectly good, solid chapters for 1967. Since 1967, right, there, there was a long gap. Um, it, it, it seems to be 
I, I've noticed an odd pattern in Central Asian history. We, we seem to go through spurts of scholarship, right? So this is this explosion of scholarship about Central Asia in the late 1960s, then very, very little for 30 years. And then in the late 1980s, early 1990s, my cohort came along, uh, sort of the perestroika group, me, Adib Khalid, Marianne Camp, uh, Scott's a, a little later, uh, and we published a whole bunch of stuff. And then things were kind of dormant for a bit, and now we've got a new explosion of, of scholarship, some of it coming, of course, from Central Asian scholars themselves. Uh, but in all that work, that vast and, and very, very good um, pile of scholarship, this was overwhelmingly material written by specialists and for specialists. And it made entry into the field of Central Asian studies, very difficult for anybody. Uh, I remember thinking when I was starting my studies that you know, I had to read through something four, five, six times before I even got the basic sense of what was going on. Right? And there was very, very little guidance. Um, in the decades after Allworth's Russia or Central Asia under Russian rule came out. A couple of people had tried um, and had had written surveys of Central Asia, but what they tended to be, first of all, were surveys that covered the entire period, right, two thousand years, uh, crammed into a very small book, uh, and and the books that came out were still usually written by specialists, and they contained some really great nuggets of information for other specialists, but it still was not something that you could use for undergraduates or as an introduction to the field. Um, so to, to get back to the, the beginning of this story, you know, here I am um, at the Central Eurasian Studies Conference in 2014, uh, lamenting the lack of this. And it occurred to me that I was in a really good position to write the book that I felt I needed, right, which was an accessible, short introduction to modern Central Asian history intended for undergraduates and general readers, right, to bring people into the field. Um, so that was sort of the, the, the pull, right, why, you know, this is a book that we really need. I feel like I'm at a good place in my career to write this book. Um, the other reason I, I chose this project uh, was sort of a push or a negative uh, factor, which is the fact that it's been very, very hard to get into Central Asia to do any kind of archival work since about 2003, 2005, right? I was there last in 2003 uh, in Uzbekistan, at least doing uh, research. But with all of the political closing down and, and many hostile regimes, uh, you know, in principle, I'm supposed to be working on a book about the development of modern childhood in Central Asia and using childhood as a vehicle to create nations. And someday I'd like to write that book. Uh, but at the moment, I'm just stuck, right? Because without archival access, I'm very, very limited in what I can do. So I felt like, okay, I can write a book that is really useful for the field, but I don't have to go to Central Asia. I can sit at home and write it, and it's all very doable. So that's how this project started. Yeah, and, and as a student, a kind of up-and-coming uh, student and scholar of Central Asia, I can definitely echo kind of some of what you're saying. I felt like even as I was reading the book, I was like, yeah, this would have been very helpful to have, you know, eight you know, six to eight years ago when I uh -huh. was actually starting to get into this. And I, I was, I was actually explaining to a friend, like, 
I I also felt that like in order to kind of get a picture of what what was happening in the history of Central Asia, I had to kind of jump around from book to book and kind of put it all together. So um, I do applaud your effort actually to try to bring it all together, and I think um, it, it was pretty successful in that regard. So um, you know, job well done. Um, but I'm wondering if if uh, you can explain a little bit. Um, so, you know, there's an obvious reason for, for focusing on, on Russia and Central Asia. Um, um, but it seems that you are making a specific argument about um, kind of a much longer history of engagement between Russia and Central Asia. And I'm wondering how, other, how you see other neighboring empires, say Iran or China, um, fitting into this picture um, and, and, and what's so special about, about the, the Russian uh, engagement in the region? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah, certainly a a very fair question. I I think one of the reasons why uh, people have hesitated to try and write a history of Central Asia like this is because, you know, where do you even start? Um, It's a vast area, and it's an area that many of these larger surrounding empires have had a big say in. Um, What I decided to do, some of the cuts that I made really were in the name of creating a narrative, again, that an entry level or a curious general reader uh, could follow. Right. And so I decided uh, from very early on that I was not going to deal with East Turkestan, right, Xinjiang, the areas that had been under Chinese influence very much at all, uh, because it's in a sense, the historical experience of Central Asians further east, right, who did not go through the Soviet period or much Russian rule, even if they've had Russian influence, uh, is very, very different from the historical experience of the peoples in what we call today the five republics, right, of Central Asia. Uh, So that that was one cut I made. Iran is trickier because Iran, you know, had never had political governance um, in this part of Central Asia, but it has had absolutely enormous cultural influence. Uh, the, the music, the architecture, the clothing styles, of course, the, the literature, um, there's economic influence, just an enormous amount of stuff. In, in some ways, you could make an argument that uh, Central Asia can be seen as a part of greater Iran, right? At, at least in more in the cultural sense, certainly than in the political sense. But I think that argument is there. Uh, That is something I did try to at least touch on in the book. Uh, But when I decided to really focus on the relationship between Central Asians and Russians, uh, I was thinking of a couple of things. One, again, thinking of my own experience as a teacher in a small liberal arts college uh, where I teach uh, only undergraduates uh, or even talking to friends and family, uh, when they ask very basic questions about what is Central Asia, what they are thinking of are those five republics. Like That's what they've heard of. And you know, nowadays, people, of course, have heard, I hope, of, of Xinjiang uh, and the Uyghurs. Um, but in... You know, one of my favorite headlines in The Economist some years ago was a little article about Azerbaijan and the stands, right? It sounds like a garage band. Um, so I'm, I'm 
thinking about addressing somebody who's thinking of Central Asia as a garage band. Uh, so that, that's sort of a flip answer. Um, another big goal I had in crafting the narrative the way I did and shaping it the way I did is I think our current narrative of history is still very, very focused on nation states, right? That the, the discipline of history, as we know it, as a professional discipline uh, born more or less in the 18th century, rose with the rise of the nation state, right? In France, in, in England, in Germany. Uh, and it, it's only within the last... 20, 25 years, that it has become more common to have historians who see themselves as historians of regions, right, rather than historians of just one particular country. You know, I, we're honoring a colleague of mine who recently died, uh, and she was a historian of France, right, and that's what she did, um, in, instead of a more, you know, broadly cast historian of Europe. And there are a lot of good reasons why we focus on the nation state as a building block when we create historical narratives. For one thing, it gives us a narrative. It's an easy tool to use. But I think particularly in the case of the Eurasian continent, right, really, when you, we think of this whole vast landmass, um, focusing exclusively on nation states can be highly distorting. And if I were to set sit down and say, okay, I'm going to write a history of Uzbekistan and Kazakhstan and Turkmenistan and Russia, uh, but calling them all just nation states, that I think created, would have created a, a much, what, what word am I looking for? You know, a, a simplified narrative that, that simplified to the point of distortion, I think is what I'm trying to say. That when you really look at the long-term history, and, and you have to look at the very long-term history. You cannot just start in the 20th or even in the late 19th century. Uh, what you see is a very complicated and continually changing kaleidoscope of interactions among not only Russians, right, but Slavs, right, people who ultimately would call themselves Ukrainians or Belarusians as well as Russians, and among Turkic and Iranian speaking peoples of the steppe uh, and of the oases. Uh, so what I wanted to do was write a book that, yes, was a basic introductory history, but also was a history that tries to break out of this constricting mold of the nation state and say, look, we need to look at cultures that are interacting with each other in very fluid ways. Yeah, and I think that comes through definitely in the book. And, you know, one thing that I was kind of, that I thought you did incredibly well was um, looking at, at how the different parts of Central Asia, um, you know, to put it basically the steppe lands versus the, the settled regions, but also mm -hmm. the nomadic regions. I mean, there are, you're showing that there's actually like a, a real complexity here and, and the ways that these kind of dynasties or, or different societies are moving in and out. I mean, it is a little bit much to, to take on, oh, yeah. um, but I think, I think you do a really good job at, at showing every kind of dramatic turn that, that took place. And um, also, you know, showing that there, there is like a confusion 
um, with some of these kind of terms that we use today um, because they meant very different things in the past. So mm -hmm. like what is a Kazakh in the 16th century, 17th century is, is very different than what we think of today. Um, and, and because you've taken this kind of basically, I guess, from the 15th century um, up until the present, we kind of get a sense of how this how this is changing. Um, and I thought that was done really well. Um, but I, I want to talk specifically about the subtitle of your book, um, mm -hmm, which mm -hmm. I've mentioned, um, Coexistence, Conquest, and Convergence. And I think this is a very neat way of approaching the history. And I think what you're trying to do is, is um, kind of create like periods or chunks of Central Asian history to help us, to help the reader make sense of, of these different periods. Um, is this... Is this your way of kind of uh, codifying like Russian and Central Asian engagement? Um, and, and how do you use those terms to, to approach this history? Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it is using those three terms, as you said, as, as big periodic divisions across the book, uh, I thought was a handy way to tell the reader quickly how this relationship is changing through time. Um, one of the things that has been absolutely essential to me uh, that I could not have written this book without is the fact that I teach all of Russian history at Hamilton College. I start with Rurik and the Vikings and Kiev and Rus, uh, and we go all the way up to not quite the present, but but I do get up into the 2000s. I, and, you know, teaching that vast span of history and, and related courses, not just the survey, but, but a lot of other courses uh, that deal with medieval Russia or more modern uh, Russia, that is was essential to giving me a long-term perspective on how these relationships have developed. Uh, you know, one of the things that you really can't see unless you take a pretty close look at what is happening in Kiev and Rus, uh, by which I mean give or take 9th century up to the 13th century, right, when the Mongols uh, sacked Kiev in 1240, is the fact that we, you know, we can argue and, and certainly do argue about, is this the beginnings of Russian history? Is this the beginnings of Ukrainian history? Of course, the, the answer is it's both. But there's a lot more going on there than just the Slavs. Right? If you take a look at the early chronicles, there are repeated and regular references to Turkic steppe nomads, right? Moving, not only moving in and out, but actually being present and interacting with this culture. And and this this requires a certain amount of close reading because if it, you know the ancient chronicles written by Orthodox monks, of course they routinely refer to all non Christians as heathens, as pagans, as barbarian, as as barely human. You've got to sift through that rhetoric, um, and, and they must have been pretty good at compartmentalizing because there are cases where you'll have the chronicler writing about the godless Kumans. Uh, and then a sentence or two later mentioning, oh, yeah, and this prince was married to the daughter of the Kuman chief. Um, yeah, they're clearly interacting very, very closely with each other. Um, yeah, there are laws in uh, the Novgorod Chronicle that forbid Orthodox Christians from marrying either Jews or Muslims. 
one of the things that tells us is that they are marrying Jews and Muslims, that these communities are living so close together that intermarriage is you know, an issue, right? If you happen to be a clergyman who's trying to protect the purity of your community. And again, I think the fact that we usually don't talk about early Rus history that way is an artifact of our historians clinging to the nation state as a model. We say, okay, this is Kiev and Rus, this is early Russian history, and we just ignore that other stuff, right? Because it's complicated, undergraduates don't understand it, we don't want to deal with it. Um, But it gives us a very incorrect picture of what was going on. So that provided my starting point, the idea that these are two peoples who are coexisting together. Um, from there, right, the, the, the next two big divisions, right, the conquest division that starts to surface in chapter two, as I talk about how the balance of power between uh, the Slavs in the West and, and the, the Turkic peoples in the East began to shift and why. Uh, up to the actual Russian colonial conquest, right? The the narrative kind of does neatly build up from there. Um, And then the idea of convergence, I think, really points toward not so much imperial Russian rule, but the Soviet project uh, and and the the fantastical Soviet project that we're going to take all of these hundred or so nationalities across this vast continent and turn everybody into a good revolutionary communist. Right, and we're going to push everybody into the mold of a culture envisioned by you know a couple of Germans sitting in England in the middle of the 19th century. Um, but, and all of these things are, I think, really essential to understanding what it is we're looking at when we look at Central Asia today. Right, that that you know, Muslims would look at modern, you know, somebody from Uzbekistan and say, "Well, I think you're Muslim, but you're sure different." Uh, why are you different? You've got to understand this whole vast background uh, to see what feeds into it. Yeah, thank you for that overview, and I think we'll we'll get to each of these points as we move through the interview now. Um, and I kind of want to start, you know, getting into the chapters by looking at. Um, this shift from coexistence to conquest. And this Mm -hmm. is a a very long process in itself. Um, So, um, you know, you, after, after some point you start talking about that there's, there's a shift in power balances that, that takes place over a couple, a couple of centuries really um, that, that eventually leads to this conquest and direct Russian rule. And I think one of the arguments you're trying to make, and maybe this is already kind of a common argument in, in the field, is that um, is about the centralization of Russian power. And, and I'm curious, like, why does this power shift um, away from the, the Central Asian Khanates towards uh, a kind of centralized Russian rule? And how does that relate to kind of... Uh, what you seem to be suggesting is, is a Mongol legacy uh, mm-hmm, that the mm-hmm. Russians actually inherit. And, and also like, is this, is this a novel argument or are you pushing the envelope here? Um, because even for me as someone who doesn't typically read in this period of history, um, that was kind of an interesting argument. And I'm curious how that fits within like the broader field. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, it's, it's certainly not an argument that um, is original to me, right? My, uh, you know, ability to 
do the scholarship in that period of Muscovy is, is highly, highly limited. At the same time, it's an argument that even though it's been kicking around for about 30 years now, still does feel kind of edgy, right? This is new. This is not really something that we're focused on a lot in our narrative of, of Russian history specifically. So, so for me, this narrative really begins with Charles Halperin's 1985 book, Russia and the Golden Horde, which was highly controversial uh, when it came out uh, because he, you know, based on a close reading of the chronicles and archival sources, argued that Russia, in fact, owed a great amount of particularly in its military and governmental structures, to the experience of being ruled by the Mongols. And, and he goes through and points out things that you know, were not new, right, people had said, but, but he also pointed out the implications that people really had not wanted to deal with, which is the Russians are regularly providing soldiers to be drafted into the Mongol military. They're fighting with the Mongols. That means they have to not only accept Mongol command, they have to make their military structure and tactics conform with those of the Mongols. The Mus- you know, Muscovite kingdom, as it developed, was fiscally part of the larger Mongol empire, right? They had to conform to Mongol fiscal accounting and tax standards. Uh, and, and again, historians have said for decades, the Russian word for money, dengi, the word for treasury, kazni, th- those come from the Mongol. It's like, we knew that. But Halperin kind of pointed out the obvious and saying, this means that the Mongols, in fact, had a significant role in shaping Russian culture. Now, other people have built on that and, and are, are still doing really fascinating work in this area. Uh, Don Ostrovsky's book from 1998, uh, A Further Study on Russia Under Mongol Rule, the more recent work by Nancy Shields Coleman, um, on Muscovy as a Eurasian empire, uh, all build on this. Uh, but this kind of narrative, uh, and, and in essence, what I'm arguing and, and, and taking from these earlier scholars is that, you know, why Moscow out of this, this mess of little tiny city-states that the Mongols had conquered in 1240? Uh, the Mongols needed one power to be designated for them as their tax collector, their keeper of order. The princes of Muscovy, you know, back and forth over several centuries, stepped forward and offered to do the job for the Mongols and use that as an opportunity to build their dynasty and their city-state, Moscow, into the center of a new state that comes to be called Muscovy and ultimately the Russian Empire, um, that the experience of Mongol rule more than Mongol conquest is what made Muscovy the powerful regional and and later international actor that it is going to uh, become. that narrative still faces very, very powerful opposition from a more Russian nationalist narrative right, that, that prefers either to simply focus on the Mongols' brutality or to ignore the Mongols and say, look, they didn't live in Russia, they didn't touch the church, they really just didn't do much with Russia one way or the other. It was Russians who built Russia. And of course, there's a lot to be said for that argument. But again, it's the, the truth is much messier and much more international, uh, much more imbricated than, than a national argument would have it. Um, so I'm starting from that base, and I think that provides 
part of what I like about that argument is it does, in fact, explain a great deal about why Moscow emerges and how the Muscovite state itself, uh, beginning in the 16th century under Ivan the Terrible, does start to emerge as the great conqueror of all of these other polities across Central Asia. Um, then, of course, the opposite question is, well, why didn't the Uzbeks do that? Why didn't the Kazakhs do that? Um, both of these peoples, as I talk about in the book, themselves are descendants of the Golden Horde, of the same group that the Juchid Khanate that had governed over Muscovy. So they're coming from that area. Again, they had been, in fact, coexisting uh, with Russians under a common Mongol uh, rule. Um, but beginning in the 15th century, as the Golden Horde was breaking up, the peoples, the Turkic tribes who will eventually become Uzbeks and Kazakhs migrated to the east. And the lands that they ended up conquering had been under the governance, not of the Juchid Mongol Khanate, but of the Chagatai Mongol Khanate. And of the four big Mongol sub-kingdoms, Chagatai was the one that had never coalesced into a single coherent kingdom. And it was always a mess. It split along the environmental lines of steppe versus oasis. They always had multiple princes. That's part of why uh, Shaibani Khan, the, the, the Uzbek founder, was able to sweep in and conquer uh, the last of the Timurid statelets down there. Um, over the longer haul, for the purposes of my narrative, what that also helps us explain is that the Kazakh hordes, you know, three hordes, and the three major Uzbek Khanates that developed, Hiva, Bukhara, and Kokand, um, they did not have to centralize the way that the Mongols forced the Russians to centralize. Right? They didn't have an outside power sitting on top of them and saying, one person is going to take care of business for us. Uh, and what that meant was that they could develop, right? These could be very sophisticated kingdoms at, at different points, uh, but they're fragmented and they're very focused on trying to fight against each other um, for control. In fact, something that was new to me uh, that I realized as I was writing this book was a it looks like a big part of why the Central Asian kingdoms could not centralize on their own is because they were too evenly balanced in power, right? And, and nobody can really get a handle and, and conquer everybody else, which is okay until some bigger outside power comes in um, and, and, and starts to trash you. Uh, so that's one big analytical explanation that I find compelling for understanding why and how the Russians are going to come to dominate the entire Eurasian landmass rather than the Central Asian peoples. Um, I think another explanation that we have to look at, and again, why it is very important to step outside of the nation-state boundaries to understand what's going on here, um, is that Central Asia, particularly the Kazakhs, just ended up with a lot of bad luck uh, in their location. Uh, what you see uh, beginning really in the 17th century uh, with the rise of the Mongol Zungar kingdom to the east is that the Kazakh hordes are getting pinned in. They're smack in the middle of the continent. Uh, they're far away from 
a lot of oceans are trade routes. They discover that Russia is covering them over from the north as Russia conquers Siberia and will eventually make a treaty directly with the Chinese uh, that cuts the Kazakhs out of a lot of overland trade, right? So they've got pressure from the north and the west from the Russians. They've got tremendous pressure from the Zungars to the east, uh, something that is is little studied, um, I think, because so few people know Mongol and can read Zungar archives. Um, and they've got pressure periodically from the south, from the Uzbek Khanates. So they just get progressively penned in uh, until they really, they, they run out of choices, right? There's nothing that they can do to prevent themselves from being chopped up. Uh, the Uzbek Khanates are going to go through a similar process, similar external forces, but it's a little later. Yeah, and then, so in, in some ways it seems like, so there's this initial period, um, which is, it's a very long period, uh, where Russia is is kind of, I don't want to say organically, but, but is expanding in a way um, that seems somewhat disorganized um, and, and involves kind of um, sur- almost survival strategies on these different frontier locations uh, with all of these different Khanates. Um, is, is there, could you draw, and, and, and I want to answer this quickly and then kind of move on to another topic, but could you draw a connection between uh, the Mongol style of rule earlier on um, as they ruled over the Russians and, and all these other places and the way that the Russians later engage with all of these separate khanates? Um, I think or is the, that a bit of a stretch? Yeah, I, I mean, I would not at all want to say that the Russians ruled over Central Asia the way the Mongols had ruled over them. Um, but I think that there is still a powerful legacy, and, and that's one of the um, big um, analytical tools I try to use through the book is this idea of a Turco-Mongol uh, cultural complex, right? That that gradually also uh, that the Russians are peripherally part of. That when the Russians did start to conquer to their east and south, um, they are acutely aware that they are conquering the descendants of the peoples who had ruled them. Right, when uh, Ivan the Terrible took the title of Tsar uh, in uh, fifteen, uh, sorry, yeah, fifteen forty-seven, when he was formally crowned, um, you know, he knew very well that that was what the Russians had always called the Mongol Khans, as well as the Byzantine Emperor. Uh, that they're seeing themselves as, I think, now very much the more dominant power, but they're conquering. They're former conquerors. They're conquering people they know, cultures that they have had f- fairly close ties with for a long time. Um, and, and so it's, it, it's not that they're applying the same techniques, but, but in a way, I think we see Russia take a more hands-off approach as a colonial power than, say, the French did in Africa, uh, precisely because they had respect uh, and knowledge of the people that they were conquering. Right. Um, and so um, I guess when you actually move in, uh, so so that's different than, than this actual period of conquest, which begins much later. Um, uh, so when, when Russia actually, 
I, I guess you're kind of also suggesting that in the 19th century, when Russia finally decides to to kind of start the official conquest of Central Asia, that this too is kind of a, a rather meal piece kind of um, project, and it's not it's not an overarching plan, and it actually involves um, a complex uh, number of actors, kind of um, addressing different concerns. Um, are you pushing back at some kind of earlier idea of, of how people used to talk about the, the Russian conquest of Central Asia? Um, and I guess the question I'm trying to get at is, uh, when did it become clear that conquest was, was the ultimate goal? Um, was, did the conquest happen and then it was explained uh, later as, as kind of a, a coherent project or... Um, I guess how did how did this uh, conquest actually come about mm-hmm. um, um, in in the nineteenth century? Yeah, the, there are there were a couple of things on my mind as I started to write the chapter about the conquest. Uh, one was again thinking of of my general reader audience that your inclination is to say, okay, Russia is a colonial imperial power. Uh, very similar to the British in India or the French in, in Africa and the Middle East. And I wanted to push back against that uh, to begin with and say, actually, there's a lot of very different ingredients going on, even though this is, in fact, you know, a conquest that will incorporate these people into the empire. Uh, we have been, for many decades, really the only available narratives of the Russian conquest had been written in the late 1960s or some even earlier by Richard Pierce. I think his book was 1954, maybe, and then uh, Seymour Becker uh, on the uh, Khanates of Hiva and Bukhara under Russia, and of course going back to Edward Allworth's book and those central chapters written by Helene Carrera-Doncos that provided a pretty standard narrative of the conquest from the perspective of the Russian generals and political figures who wrote their memoirs after the fact, right? Most of the historians who approach this topic in the 1950s and the 1960s, uh, Allworth himself being an important exception, uh, most of these other historians did not read Central Asian languages, right? So they're using Russian sources, they're uh, using British sources quite heavily, and French sources. And and so you get very much a top-down narrative. That is something I wanted to push against. Um, I do want to say that um, my discussion of the Russian conquest in this book is very heavily influenced by the new work being done by Alexander Morrison. And he is an English historian. Uh, His book, He's got a brand new book on the Russian conquest of Central Asia that I think is going to come out pretty soon. I, I know he's been working on it for a while, um, but I've you know read his publications and, and talked to him and, and used some of his conference papers uh, in my book. So a lot of this comes uh, from, from Alex's work where he, he, it was Alexander Morrison who, who really pointed out the 
you know, and not just piecemeal, right? There were parts of the Russian conquest of Central Asia, such as taking Tashkent itself in 1865, that were planned and properly discussed from the top down to uh, General Chernyayev. But then there's a lot of what followed afterwards that seems to have been carried out by the soldiers on the ground. And then later on, they informed St. Petersburg what they were doing. So it's as with many things, it's a challenge to write a coherent narrative because the events themselves were not coherent. We cannot say that Russia had a definite plan and policy and followed through. Sometimes they did. Sometimes they changed their minds. Sometimes they just did things with no plan and then came up with an explanation afterwards. Um, but, but one thing I think is very important to understand in the driving of the Russian conquest in the 19th century is that this is, again, part of a much bigger political and cultural movement across Eurasia, where Russia now sees itself as a European state and very much needs to see itself as being respected in the eyes of other European states. So where in, say, the 16th or the 17th century, when Muscovite mostly diplomats or traders interacted with Central Asians, uh, they didn't necessarily like each other, right? It's like, you're an infidel, I don't like you, you're foreign. Um, But they respected each other, and and they seem to have treated each other not quite as equals, but but again, there's a sense of we know each other, right? We live in this place together. That changes, Right. And, and so we get up to the 19th century. And I think a lot of what's happening is the Russian top level state officials and this filters down to the military officers are looking over their shoulder at the Europeans. Right. As, as Dostoevsky famously said, in Europe, we are Asiatics, but in Asia, in, in Central Asia specifically, we get to be the Europeans. Right. And they start that awareness, that continuing sense of inferiority when compared to the Germans and the French and the British very much shapes Russian actions and policies and attitudes as they're conquering in the 19th century. Yeah, thank you for clarifying that. And, um, you know, there's a lot that I liked in your answer, but one thing that specifically stuck out um, you mentioned that that one thing you're trying to do is is as, actually look at Central Asian sources themselves and see if they they help us tell a different kind of story of um, of this whole history, but specifically of, of Russian conquest in this case. Um, and one thing I noticed throughout the book is is you seemed interested in in bringing kind of reintroducing uh, women actually Central yes. Asian women into your uh, narrative, which I found totally refreshing. Um, and I, just to give an example, so in 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 one chapter on the 18th century, uh, you bring in the figure of Molar Ayem. Uh, uh-huh, I, uh-huh. I think I'm pronouncing that right. Uh, who goes by the the pen name of Nodira? Nodira. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and she's uh, I guess the wife of a governor in Andijan in the Kokand Empire, or you know, uh, the Khan of Kokand. Yeah, um, and and I was curious, like. Um, so to me, I, I read this as as kind of one. You're bringing in a very interesting part of this history um, that's been overlooked, but also it seems like you're kind of um, nudging other historians to kind of adopt similar approaches. Um, maybe maybe I'm um, speaking for you 
<laughs> but but um, that's that's how I read it. And and I'm curious what kind of advice you can give other historians who might be listening uh, to kind of continue this type of history and incorporate those voices uh, into their work on Central Asia. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, oh, I, I would very much like to uh, nudge historians into taking a broader view of Central Asia, although you know given some of the newer work that people have been doing, I I don't think it would take a terribly hard shove. Uh, It's the near absence of women in Central Asian history, uh, in written Central Asian histories until the 1990s, I think, again, was an artifact of the standard narrative focusing on the conquest, focusing on high politics. Uh, Central Asian women, of course, did not participate in these things. Uh, and so you were left with very little information, except maybe for Richard Burton's uh, comment, right, when asked what the women of Buhara looked like. And he reportedly said, I have no idea. I never saw one between the ages of five and 65, because otherwise they were all veiled. Um so, so certainly, I want to push back against that. This also, you know, I want to see the whole field, and I think we are doing this. Um, move toward a study of Central Asian history as social history, as cultural history. Right? The, these, this is inhabited by people uh, beyond the goings on in various palaces, uh, and and that's the fascination is how are ordinary people living and working uh, and conducting their lives. Uh, the problem, of course, as always, is sources, and particularly for Central Asian women, because they tended to be much less literate uh, and often were not really written about uh, by outsiders uh, very well or very carefully, it's been very difficult uh, to find material before the 20th century. Right? And of course, in the 1990s, Marianne Camp, Douglas Northrup came along and did their work on the Soviet unveiling campaign. Um, there's interesting questions about the sources that I used in this section of the book. So we've got Nodera um, and her circle of women poets, right? So she was married to the Khan of Kokand at the time, right? So this is, you know, the elite women in the palace. And what they are doing is, you know, they're behaving pretty much exactly like the way the ladies of the Shah's court in Tehran uh, were behaving at the same time, which is they're very pious. They are literate, right? They're writing poetry for each other. Uh, they're doing good works, but they're confined, right? The, the, you know, these are the, the, the women who, who very much are, um, you know, when they go out, they're wearing uh, the, the full paranji. Uh, yeah, they are not seen by the public. So it's voices of women, but it doesn't exactly give you a great view of ordinary life for most ordinary women. Uh, then there's this outstanding memoir um, by a woman named Dilshot. And I should also say that our major access to texts by any of these women does come through Soviet sources. Right? It was Soviet historians, I think beginning in the 1960s, who kind of dug these women out of earlier sources and started presenting them in their narratives to Uzbek and, and Tajik schoolchildren. Here's your history. Here's your people. Right? These are the people you need to be proud of. So from the West, you know, we sort of, you know, I and I think most of us come at this initially through looking at Soviet histories and saying, well, who are these people? Uh, our text by this woman calling herself Dilshad, 
seems to exist in it's an Uzbek translation of a Persian original um, done by uh, an Uzbek scholar in the 1980s. I'm blanking on her name, but it's in my bibliography. Um, and it seems in many ways extraordinary. You know, she apparently lived to be 105 years old uh, from 1800 to uh, 1905, uh, which I find quite startling uh, to begin with. Um, the text in many ways is an absolutely wonderful find because it's one of our only written sources, not only by a woman from Central Asia, but also by somebody who's not a member of the courtly elite. So she's literate, she writes poetry, she ran a girl's school for many decades, and she wrote about all that stuff. Um, and that's wonderful. But I also feel a little worried about that as a source because I've never run into any secondary scholarship that talks about the original manuscript. And I have, I've started to ask around uh, some, some Uzbek friends, uh, you know, where is Dilshad's original manuscript? I haven't gotten any answers. So it's, I think it's very much a direction I want to see our scholarship go in. But I think we also have to be careful because there seem to be a lot of landmines out there. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, for the sake of time, unfortunately, um, I want to move a little bit further, further actually into the, the Soviet period. Um, you have really great chapters on kind of the revolution and the early foundations of Soviet uh, state in Central Asia. And actually, this has been, I would say, like in the last uh, 20 years, this has been one of the most kind of proactive uh, periods of as far as like periods of study um, that scholars have looked at. Um, so I don't want to spend too much time on that. Uh, what I did find really interesting um, is, is your section on actually the post-war period in, in Soviet Central Asia, um, which has arguably uh, received uh, considerably less attention by scholars. Um, in many ways, I, I felt that this was another one of those kind of call to actions uh, uh, for scholars um, to to look at this kind of post-war uh, World War II period, but um, you know you're looking at things like the cotton monoculture, uh, the rise of kind of a period of stability and growth on the one hand, and frustrations with Soviet rule on the other hand. But I'm curious if you can kind of give us some of the main takeaways of this period, um, kind of looking at how socialism matured in Central Asia and, and um, kind of, you know, is it, was it difficult to write this kind of chapter? Um, I'm, I'm wondering if you can just kind of summarize and characterize that period uh, as a whole. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, that, it's a fascinating period. Um, again, I think what we're seeing here is, you know, scholarship moving on, right? So my cohort of historians, not only of Central Asia, but of the Soviet Union as a whole, those of us who were in graduate school in the late perestroika period, the 1990s, uh, we totally went to town on the Stalin period, right? That's, that's what we were doing. And that's how I started off, my first book being on Stalin's campaigns against Islam. Um, and, and that was very exciting. And, you know, we'll, we'll never, of course, tire of writing about the Stalin period. Uh, but, you know, it's. I, I think it is time to move on to the more recent, the 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 post-war decades, and and that's a little challenging. Uh, there, there's a bit 
at, at least on in in Moscow, it was harder to get into the post-war archives for a long time than it was into the 1930s archives. Uh, right now, of course, it's hard to get into any archives at all. Uh, but that chapter was certainly challenging to write because there's not a huge amount of secondary literature. On the other hand, that is the direction that my own more recent research has been going in, has been in the 1950s and 1960s. So I was able to draw on um, some of the work that I've been doing uh, anyway, uh, and that helped form that chapter. But I think that is a period that there's a lot of very important questions that, that desperately need exploration, although I'm not quite sure how we're going to do it. One of the big things, I think, is, in fact, money. Right? That under Khrushchev in particular, and, and, and this Brezhnev follows up, um, they're the ones who bring the Soviet Union to its fully economically mature state. right? And that's where, of course, we, we talk about cotton monoculture in, in Uzbekistan. Uh, but Uzbekistan, all of these republics are cogs in a much larger machine that's designed for every part to complement every other part. Uh, So there's a lot that Central Asians cannot control in their own economy. They have to grow those commodities. Um, Otherwise, you know, that's the one thing the state enforces. Grow cotton or you're in trouble. In other areas... Uh, the state under Khrushchev and Brezhnev really backed off, and they did a lot to allow the non-Russian republics to start controlling much of their own internal budgets, where they're going to spend money, uh, you know, their internal taxes. And this has lots and lots of implications for the relative political power of these republics in the later Soviet Union, and of course for the functioning of the Soviet Union as a whole. Um, and, and so there's uh, just a host of fascinating questions here. The, the other thing I think that we need to look at in the post-war decades is that, again, when we're looking at Central Asian societies today, the societies we see today were born in the 1950s. And it, it's really kind of a shock because if you focus on the Stalin period, on the 1920s and 1930s, it's just an endless tale of horror. All right, they, they try to educate people, they try to build schools, then they collectivize and kill a million and a half Kazakhs uh, and, and, and many other Central Asians. The purges sweep through and destroy a lot of the work that the Soviet state itself had built up. Then World War II comes through right, and, and does quite a bit more damage. Um, and then you get to 15 years later, 20 years later, 1965, and all of a sudden, kids are going to summer camp, there's ice cream parlors. Um, where did this modern society come from? It's this period uh, that, that um, I, I think deserves a lot of focus if we can get into it. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, and I, I kind of... Uh, yeah, I can't agree with you more, and, I, and I'm really excited to hear you kind of talk about things in this way. And I think um, it's, in, in some ways it's a really exciting, um, although exciting period to, to study. Um, you know, obviously it, it proposes some challenges, but I think that also calls on uh, some of these scholars to, to get more creative in the way that they uh, use sources and access those sources. Um, 
And I, I kind of want to end uh, by talking about kind of the present moment, because you actually bring us uh, all the way up to the current moment in your book. And one sentence that you actually wrote uh, really, really stuck with me. And I think it's, it's, a, it's an interesting way to end the book, considering your focus on kind of the ways that Russia and Central Asia have been entangled, you know, um, since the 14th century, I suppose. Um, and you write that uh, Russian presence in Central Asia is much diminished in the in the current moment, but that more Central Asians live in Russia than ever before. And I can't help to think uh, of the way that this kind of, um, you know, this is kind of, I guess, like a post-imperial moment, we might call that. Um, and it, 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 it kind of reminded me of, of the former British Empire and the way that uh, something similar happened there, you know, um, that that there was first this loss of empire, and you know we saw in in the UK how this this kind of resentment, um, in some ways, uh, about the loss of empire and this perceived loss of of their own country has played out politically. Um, and I'm just curious how how this particular moment. Um, when so many Central Asians are living in Russia, uh, fits into your broader understanding of of this sh- these shifts in this ongoing interaction between Central Asia and Russia. Um, I think it 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 takes us right back to the first part of my subtitle, uh, which is coexistence, and and my point that Russians and Central Asians are not, have never been strangers to each other, that they live together, uh, even with the vastness of, of the Eur- Eurasian landmass. Um, these are cultures that have interact today and have interacted with each other that have needed each other uh, for many, many centuries. And that is not going to change, even as the political balance changes across Eurasia. Um, and, and of course, things right now are, are changing in a very rapid and chaotic way. I was just reading earlier today how Tajikistan is is really wobbling because they get a third of their state income as remittances from the many, many Tajiks who live and work in Russia. Uh, and that's all threatened right now by, by the current global crises, plural. Um, but I, I, again, I, I, it one of my fundamental points is that, yes, I, I want students and other people to understand the basics of more modern Russian history, but I also would like them to see uh, Russian, Russian and Central Asian history to, to see this continent, not just as a collection of nations, but as a whole, as peoples who move, as peoples who interact, as peoples who influence each other, as peoples who sometimes, in fact, become each other. Um, as the, these cultures shift back and forth. Um, we see that today. We saw it a thousand years ago. Yeah, thank you for that. And, and um, I, think, I think that's a, a really succinct way of putting it. Um, Shoshana, I, I have to thank you for your time today. This has been a very uh, fascinating um, discussion, and I really enjoyed the book. And um, now it's on my shelf, and I'm sure I'll it will be uh, read over and over again. Um, and I'm just curious before we end, if you, if there are any other uh, projects that you have in the pipeline that you'd like to share with us, are you currently, I know you mentioned you're currently working on something. 
um, looking at this post-war period. Um, do you care to share uh, what that work looks like? Um, I've, I've got a couple of projects that are sort of halfway done that, that I would like to eventually bring to fruition. I, I really have shifted my attention to the post-war decades uh, more than the Stalin period. Um, my original plan uh, after this book came out was I was going to take a break from scholarship for a bit, but then I just took a course in uh, the, the basics of geographic information systems and spatial analysis and mapping. Uh, and the, the little final project I started to do for that course, I'm now thinking seriously about as the next research project I want to do, which is to look at the demographic balances and shifts in Kazakhstan uh, in the aftermath of the famine. Uh, because, and, and I'm, I'm currently also reviewing Sarah Cameron's terrific book um, on the hungry step on the famine in, in Kazakhstan. Uh, but, you know, we talk about how after the famine, the Kazakhs are a minority in their own republic, right? Very well and good. But GIS combined with census data, I'm thinking, might give us some sense of where the Kazakhs were, right? How are these communities being distributed across the republic? Um, so I'm just in very, very early stages of this project. I'm building uh, usable databases out of Soviet census data and learning how to map them with GIS onto the ever-shifting Kazakh oblasts. Uh, so we'll see where that goes. Great. And I, I hope that if this ever uh, becomes another book um, in the end, that you'll uh, come back to uh, the podcast and, and talk with us about it. Okay, terrific. Well, it was great to talk great. to you. Yeah, thank you again for um, for talking with me today. And for the listeners, if you like what you heard and you're interested in learning more, you can check out uh, the, the book Russia in Central Asia, Coexistence, Conquest, and Convergence uh, by Shoshana Keller, published by the University of Toronto Press.